This church is truly a historic church. For those of you who aren't aware, this church is actually the combination of two older churches, one being First Parish, the other being First Universalist. First Parish is the founding church of Haverhill. I mean, it it really did have a central role in the founding of this city. Nathaniel Ward, the minister in Ipswich, was approached with the opportunity to make a settlement in what was then called the Pentucket Woods. And he said he would help with one condition, that they call his son, John Ward, to be their first minister, which they did. And it was even named after his birthplace, Haverhill, England. Of course, now, you know, uh, I just finished seminary and I looked at my father and I said, so when are you making that town for me to have a pulpit, Dad? (laughs) You know, it's 21st century problems, I guess. Regardless, First Parish had its first actual gathering in 1641. They were organized in 1645. So it's been around for just a little bit of time. Think about everything that this church has gone through. They went through the early colonial times. We had somebody in our church as a judge during the witch trials. We lived through the Revolutionary War. We lived through the Unitarian-Trinitarian split, the Civil War, Reconstruction, rise of socialism, Great Depression, both world wars, And that's when they decided to federate. So much has gone by. The other half of our church is First Universalist, which, as the name suggests, was the first Universalist church founded in Haverhill. It was founded in 1823. So yes, in case you're wondering, 200 years is approaching quite quickly. Again, First Universalist has been here through so much. Since 1823, there's been the Mexican-American War, Civil War, Reconstruction, the rise of socialism, the Great Depression, both world wars, and then they federated. That's quite a lot. Not only that, but it was the Universalists who built this amazing sanctuary. It's they who put in all these beautiful stained glass windows They're the ones who gave us the Murray Room through the sliding doors to your right. They're the ones who gave us that wonderful carpet that we talked about earlier. They're the ones who gave us our potlucks. So as you can imagine, over the course of 200 years here and 400 years there, there's a lot of stories that we could tell. We have stories of amazing triumphs in our history. These are stories we need to share. We also have stories of mistakes and blunders that we also need to share. And we have stories of great despair that gave birth to hope that was realized. In a combined 600 years of history, What we have is 600 years of people who have been trying to do the right thing and succeeding and failing to various degrees. And this variety of stories isn't unique to us, of course. 
we can find that all throughout history. Think of the stories that you know. I'm sure you have stories in your mind of amazing successes. I'm sure you have stories in your mind of amazing failures. Maybe you have stories of despair that leads to hope realized. I bet if I asked each one of you to pull up a story that was influential to you right now, you could. Maybe it's something that you did, that you lived through. Or maybe it's something that your family lived through. Or maybe it's something you learned in school. Or maybe it's something you found on your own as you searched through history. And I bet there's a lesson with that story. I bet there's a reason why you're carrying it. I have stories I carry around, stories of my life from my family's lives and from my histories. And today I want to share with you one of those stories that I carry. It's a story from our own church. It's from First Parish in 1847. So let me set the scene for this story of great despair and hope realized. In the 1820s, 1830s, there was a, a minister here named the Reverend Dudley Phelps, who the Unitarians decided to kick out of their pulpit because he wasn't Unitarian. He, he was a little too conservative for their likings. This caused a split between the Unitarians and the Trinitarians. The Trinitarians eventually moved to Bradford, and they're now part of the big white church at the center of Bradford Square. After the split, First Parish got to call their first truly Unitarian ministers. This was huge, and this was happening all over the country. And these ministers in the parish in 1837 decided to come together and to build a new meeting house, to build a new church. And so in 1837, it was constructed. It was built on a corner of two busy streets down the road a piece. That corner was the place where that new church was built. And when they built it, all the reports I found was that it was absolutely incredible. People I hear loved that church. They loved the sanctuary. They felt at home there. Everything was perfect. And so where is all this despair that I'm talking about? Well, don't worry, it's coming right now. Because 10 years later, in 1847, that church caught fire and burned to the ground. In my search for records about this fire, I couldn't really find much, oddly. I, I, to be transparent, I did not go digging in the Haverhill Public Library Special Collections. But online, through different histories, and in our church archives, almost all the time it was written, and in 1847, the Reverend James Richardson was called when the church burned to the ground. And that's it. But there is one place that had a good few paragraphs on the fire. The Haverhill Firefighting Museum's website, of all places. I'll read you a little bit from one of the paragraphs. So it reads, the Haverhill hand tubs were supplied water from the river by a bucket brigade made up of men, women, and children. 
Despite their heroic efforts, they were unable to save the edifice, which had been erected only 10 years earlier. The fire caused $12,000 damages, including the loss of a fine organ and the town clock. The Haverhill firefighters thanked and complimented the Bradford Company for responding so quickly to the alarm. So this fire, this wasn't just a small local issue. This was a big fire. The fire affected not just this town, but others around it. Men, women, and children were reported in helping to put out the flames. People from Haverhill and Bradford came to put out the fire. And it weighed so much in town memory that even the Haverhill Firefighters Museum felt compelled to include a few paragraphs about it on their website. So in March of 1847, First Parish Unitarian called the Reverend James Richardson to the pulpit. Granted, the church had already burned down, so there wasn't a pulpit for him to go to. So he was called to their pastorate. Now, I don't know if Reverend Richardson was there the day the church burned down, since it burned down on New Year's Day. But what I do know, as I was going through those boxes in the archives, that I happened to find a thing of sheet music. Inside this thing of sheet music was a poem written by the Reverend James Richardson all about that day. It was set to music, and I have to admit the music's a little peppy, I think, for the words, but it's there. And it was arranged both as a hymn and as a choral piece. But with his words, he paints a picture of that day. He paints a picture of the sorrow. He paints a picture of the hope. You know, last week, Bo Crowell preached on poetry and what it can do to us. And it's incredible because in 1847, it still was used to help make meaning. So I'm going to share a little bit of this poem. In his poem, he's, Reverend Richardson's trying to make sense of everything. And what I find so interesting is that the poem starts a little bit with hope, but then it jumps straight into despair. I'm going to read stanzas four through seven to you. These are the stanzas where he's relaying the accounts of the fire. These are the stanzas where he's dealing with his grief about what happened. Here's what he writes. But hark, what shrill, terrific cry peals wildly through the startled air as round the village madly fly both matrons old and maidens fair. Oh haste, oh haste, in accents dire, along the thronging streets they scream, our beauteous church is all on fire. See how the blood-red windows gleam. Now over hill and over dale, all solemnly fire bells told, and manhood's shriek and women's wail with terror strike each trembling soul. Men wildly speed on wings of fear, yet faster speed the roaring flames. On high the fiery heads they roar, and not their raging fiery tame. Like winged serpents they sp up they speed and fill heaven's vault with smoke and fire whose hissing tongues dart forth to feed on roof and tower and gleaming spire. 
One fearful crash and all is o'er, a canopy of smoke above. Below, where about an hour before the church stood, we so much did love. A heap of blackened ruins stare, and men and women sadly mourn the sacred shrine and temple fair, where gathered once the loved ones gone. There's so much passion in those words. There's so much pain and so much suffering. Reverend Richardson does have hope at the very end, a part I haven't read yet. But he spent seven stanzas lamenting, sitting in that grief, sitting in that despair before he got to hope. And those stanzas of lament are critical. They're setting up the final hurrah of hope. Reverend Richardson's need to lament deeply before there can be hope is not something new. We see it throughout history, even with the great prophets and scriptures of old. In the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 22 starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. And after the psalmist laments, the psalmist ends with, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. There's hope at the end. In the Greek part of the Bible, we see Jesus quoting Psalm 22 before his death. And before his execution, we see Jesus asking God why it has to be done this way. In Christianity's grand narrative, there has to be a moment of deep lament before there can be any hope in this narrative. And years later, the Baha'i prophet Baha'u'llah expressed something similar in a piece he wrote called The Fire Tablet. It was revealed by Baha'u'llah at a time of great struggle in his life, and you can hear it as he writes, in the name of God, the most ancient, the most great. Indeed, the hearts of the sincere are consumed in the fire of separation. Where is the gleaming of the light of your countenance, O beloved of the worlds? Those who are near unto you have been abandoned in the darkness of desolation. Where is the shining of the morn of your reunion, O desire of the worlds? And yet after a good few pages of throwing these questions, he, respond, he ends with, Thank your Lord for this tablet, whence you can breathe the fragrance of my meekness and know what has beset us in the path of God, the adored of all the worlds. Should all the servants read and ponder this, there shall be kindled in their veins a fire that shall set aflame the worlds. This process of sitting in lament before finding hope, it's not fun. It does not feel satisfying. And yet it is important. Jacques Prévert, the author of our reading today, lived through World War II in France. And many of the poems from this book all talk about his time dealing with the, what France did after the war. In the reading, Prévert turns his own despair into a person, 
and he has this person sit on a bench. He describes what happens to somebody who meets this despair on a bench. He talks about how people walk by and try to ignore it. And yet, if you give it attention, it sucks you in. And then despair becomes the center of your focus. Prevere explains that you are miserable, yet despair is so happy that you are there. You want to flee, yet despair is so welcoming of you on that bench. And at the end of the poem, Prevere remarks that never again will you fly from one tree to another like those birds. You will never pass by again like one of those passers-by. Sitting with your despair, sitting with your lament is hard work, but it is important work. It can change you deeply. I am currently doing work as a resident chaplain at a local hospital, and most of my work is in locked psychiatric units. I routinely speak to people who have no hope. What I have found is a generalization, it's not a rule, People break this all the time. But often, what I have found is that as long as a person is pushing off the lament, pushing off the despair, ignoring all of the horrors that have fallen upon them, and ignoring all the questions that beg to be answered, that person may speak of hope, but that hope is hollow. That hope is not a true hope. It is the hope that is said because it is the hope that should be felt, not the hope that needs to be found. For example, I met with a patient who had some major trauma in his life that he hadn't really engaged with yet. Their main complaint to me, though, was that they didn't have an authentic connection to God. I asked what they meant, and they explained to me that when they prayed, they simply didn't feel like they meant what they said. They told me they prayed for them to feel better. They thanked God for their blessings. They thanked God for their family. And yet they told me they didn't mean it when they said it. They didn't feel like it was from their heart, and they hoped it would. So after 45 minutes of talking to this person, through tears they expressed that they felt like they didn't love themselves and that they didn't matter. And at this point now, I felt they could have a true and deep hope a hope that one day they could care and love for themselves as who they were and not hate themselves for the caricature they felt they had become. So the need of this patient I met to sit with the suffering with me for almost an hour is not unique to that person. This is something that many of us have had to do throughout our lives. Reverend Richardson, and his parishioners had to do this. We heard him doing this through the seven stanzas of lament that he wrote at the fire of 1847. And yet at the end of all of that, there are these four little lines of hope. Here they are. But soon that church shall rise again in fairer beauty than before, where women pure and chastened men with holier ardor shall adore. You can hear the hope permeating through this stanza. You can hear it through tears that have truly cried sorrowfully. And his prediction did come true. On that same spot, 
that congregation built a new church, the old white church that was down the road. It was actually just torn down right there on this day. You can see there's a pizza joint and I think a dentist office. But that church came together. Only 10 years after the church had burned, they rebuilt. They pooled together their money. And in 1847, they rebuilt a church worth $7,000. That's incredible after they just built one. So even though their building is demolished today, the drive that led our Unitarian forebears is still with us. We still have their hope in our midst. This is a community that has lamented well and has realized its hopes once and many other times. Know that this community is here for you as you face your own despair. Know that you are not alone. People are here who will suffer with you. We can all sit together with despair on the bench. And we will never pass by again like those passers-by but we will rise from that bench, having truly lamented, and we will go forward with a new hope. Amen. <laughs>